Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you to our praise team and instruments this morning. Well, it is hard to believe that it's already the month of March, and this is our 10th sermon from this book. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess. And so I do hope and pray that this journey through Hebrews has been a blessing so far. Last week, we talked a lot about rest, and specifically the rest that only God can provide through salvation in Jesus Christ. We said that divine rest is not just a future hope in the kingdom of heaven, but it's also a present reality in our minds and in our hearts when we know Jesus. And my prayer is that everyone here this morning is abiding in the rest that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not, please don't leave here today without knowing that you are right with the Lord. As we turn our attention now to the next section of verses, today's text, the writer of Hebrews builds on this theme of entering God's rest. And basically, he'll say to us this morning, you've got to make absolutely sure that you have truly entered God's rest. Because one day, you're going to stand before God in judgment. And in that day, you'll be completely spiritually naked before the Lord. There won't be hiding anything. And he'll see you for who you really are. So, How does one get ready for that day? Well, we need to examine ourselves. But what tool do we use to do that? You know, if there's something wrong with our vehicle, a little warning light comes on the dash. And we can take that vehicle to a garage or an auto parts store. And they'll hook up a little machine that tells them exactly what the problem is. Maybe a cylinder's misfiring or the alternator's going bad or the air filter's dirty or whatever the case may be. But how do we do that spiritually? What diagnostic tool do we possess that will tell us where we stand with God? And that's what we're going to talk about today, but we have to work our way there. So let's begin by reading, and we'll read chapter 4 and verse 11, and then we'll talk about it. Here's what it says. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, as I said a moment ago, we're building on last week's theme of entering God's rest. And the first thing I want us to see in verse 11 is that entering God's rest is not merely something that just sort of happens to us. We don't enter God's rest passively or unknowingly. No, entering God's rest requires an intentional response on our part. This is what verse 11 means when it commands us to be diligent to enter that rest. To be diligent, by definition, is to put forth a constant effort. Verse 11, then, is calling us to action. And what is that action? How do we enter God's rest? Well, by his grace, we must repent of our sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also important to point out that this is not a one-and-done deal. We don't, quote-unquote, say the prayer and call it good. But rather, as we've stated a few times already in this series, we must constantly examine our own heart 
inspecting the fruit of our own life to verify that we truly are in Christ. And it's not that we have to be saved again every time we backslide from God. Don't fall into that trap. But there is a sense in which we should consistently be doing this self-evaluation, asking the question, do the actions of my life show that I have truly been changed by Jesus? Am I living a life of obedience to Christ? Now, I will say as we mature in Christ, as we grow in sanctification, we should become assured of our salvation. We should become confident in our faith. Why? Because we are growing in Christ's likeness. Because we have seen God work in our life in numerous ways and on numerous occasions. And through those things, we develop a sweet fellowship with him. And we develop a strong trust in him. But the point is that we should never get to the place where we take our salvation for granted. We should always be diligent to make sure that we have entered God's rest. The danger of not doing that, according to verse 11, is that we could end up like the rebellious Israelites in the days of Moses who fell in the wilderness and never got to enter God's rest because of their disobedience. And boy, we don't want that to be us at all. We don't want to fall short of heaven because we fooled ourselves into thinking that we were right with God when really we never were. What about you? Are you being diligent to enter God's rest? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus? And if you have made a profession of faith, are you constantly running diagnostics on your own heart to make sure that your salvation is for real? And someone might say, well, Josh, how do I do that? What tool do I use to examine my own heart? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's keep reading. Because verse 12 is going to tell us what tool that we can use to diagnose our own heart. Look at it with me. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, here's what this verse tells us. The greatest diagnostic tool in the universe for self-examination is the word of God. Now, oftentimes, and rightfully so, we proclaim that we must read the word. But here's the truth. As much as we read the word, the word reads us. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you cannot read and study the word of God sincerely without the Holy Spirit doing surgery on your heart. If there's unconfessed sin in your heart, he'll convict you. If there's an area of your spiritual life that you need to grow, he'll show you. If you're hurting, he'll comfort you. And if you're disheartened, he'll encourage you. The word of God reads us like a book. I have a friend who's a counselor and it's uncanny how well he can read me. He's very good at his job. And he told me one time, Josh, it is my job to hear what you're not saying. And I said, well, stop it. Get out of my head. <laughs> I don't want you reading me like that. But that's what the word of God does. Verse 12 says it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we open the word and we receive it into our life, it lays our hearts bare before the Lord. I wonder if that's why we avoid reading it sometimes. We don't like our hearts laid bare 
before the Lord. We like to hide from the Lord, don't we? Especially when we know there's sin in our heart. That shouldn't be there. Now, while you ponder that, verse 12 lists three qualities of God's word that we need to know. Knowing these three things should inspire us and compel us to spend time in the word every day of our lives. So let's look at what these are. First, verse 12 says that the word of God is living. What does it mean that the word of God is living? Well, to say that the word of God or the Bible is living is to say that it is eternally relevant and applicable. It never goes out of season. It never becomes obsolete. I don't know about you, but at our house, we have a a big stack of instruction manuals on the shelf in our laundry room. Some go to appliances and other things that are still actually in our house. Some go to things that we threw out a long time ago. If you're one of those people that keep everything and you still have an instruction manual for your VCR or your flip phone or that vacuum cleaner that you threw out years ago, those manuals are not living documents. They are dead. They are obsolete. They are irrelevant. Throw them out. There's no reason to keep them. There are some today who would seek to put the Bible in that category, who would say, why are you people still clinging to that ancient book? Don't you know that book is obsolete? That it's not relevant anymore? The world has changed. But we believe as Christians what the prophet Isaiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yes, the Bible was written thousands of years ago in another place, in another language, to another people. But here's the deal. They were people just like us. And you know what? People are people. There's nothing new under the sun. We all bear God's image. We're all human. We all have challenges. We all have heartaches. We all have the same underlying problem, which is sin. And we all have the same God-shaped hole in our heart that only he can fill. And so when we read words that were penned to people thousands of years ago, we understand that they still very much apply to us today. It's our job as students of God's word to connect the dots from them to us. Not only does God's word still apply to us today, the fact is that many of the words in scripture have yet to be fulfilled. For instance, we're still waiting for the return of Christ. We're still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom, for the inauguration of a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible tells us of things yet to come. You can't get much more relevant than that. Most importantly, the word of God is living because its hero is living. Every page of scripture is a testimony to Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead the one who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, the one who is coming back again. And not only is Jesus alive, but he is unchanging. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is our rock in rapidly changing times. And so is his word. And aren't we thankful for that? For all these reasons, it is accurate And it is true to say that the word of God is living. Now, the second thing said about the word of God in verse 12 is that it is powerful. The Greek word for powerful is energes. 
It is the word from which we get our English word energy. It means active or effective. When we say that the word of God is powerful, we are saying that it has the energy to transform hearts, that it has the power to change lives. You know, God's enabled man to design lots of really cool things that produce energy. And I'm not an expert on that. You need to talk to Clay or Marty or someone else here in the church that works with those things. But man has designed hydroelectric dams and nuclear power plants and solar panels and so on and so forth. And all these things that produce energy. But nothing in creation has the energy, has the power to change the human heart like the word of God. It is the most powerful element in existence. The power of God's word is described by God himself in Isaiah 55. It says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You know what that means? It means that every time we are faithful to proclaim the word of God, that it accomplishes exactly what God desires it to accomplish in each heart that hears it. And that'll vary from person to person. And maybe sometimes we'll see immediate fruit of what God is doing in a person's heart and life. And maybe sometimes that fruit will show itself later. But the beautiful thing is that we can be confident that if we're faithful to present God's word, he'll use it for his purposes and for his glory one way or another. That's the power of the word. Sometimes we share the gospel with someone and we walk away thinking, I'm not sure that did any good at all. I'm not even sure it registered. Can I tell you a secret? Sometimes you preach a sermon and you walk away thinking the same thing. I'm not sure that did anything for anybody. But then the Holy Spirit reminds you, no, the word of God is powerful. And it will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish, even if we don't always see it right away. What a wonderful promise that is. And here's the deal. My words don't carry that promise. When you come to church, it should never be to hear what I have to say or what your Sunday school teacher has to say. Only God's word carries the promise of transformation. That's why we need to stick to the word of God. It's unbelievably powerful. So powerful, in fact, that it can take a heart of stone and it can change it to a heart of flesh. And that's the greatest miracle of all. Well, let's look at the third thing that verse 12 tells us. The third thing said about the word of God. And that is that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. When a soldier went into battle in Bible times, if he really wanted to do damage, he sharpened both edges of his sword. And in doing so, he could penetrate and cut at every contact point with every movement, slicing more quickly and deeply and easily. The double-edged sword is a fitting metaphor for the word of God, for it does the same thing to us, not for harm, but for needed spiritual surgery. And here's what I mean by that. The word of God cuts right through the facade that we put on for others. And sometimes even the one we put on for ourselves. 
It exposes our true motives. And it exposes the true condition of our heart like nothing else can. This is what verse 12 means when it says that the word of God pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And we must not get sidetracked here. The author's intent is not to open a debate on the distinction between soul and spirit. Sometimes theologians like to get into that kind of stuff any more than it is to give an anatomy lesson on the distinction between joints and marrow. That's, that's not the point. This is figurative language to portray that the word of God has the ability like nothing else in this world to pierce us to the deepest core of our being. Now, how does it do that? Well, think back to that time when you first realized that you were a sinner in need of a savior. And that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you on the cross so that you not have to spend eternity in hell apart from God. Think about how that knowledge pierced your heart and the Holy Spirit brought you under deep conviction until you finally surrendered to the Lord. Some of you have experienced seasons of backsliding and unrepentant sin in your walk with Christ only to have God's word cut you and convict you of your sin, and bring you to your knees, and ultimately bring you home to the Lord. Some of you have had hurts so profound and buried so deep within that you didn't think they could ever be healed. And yet God's word found its way to those wounds and administered soothing balm so that they might begin to heal. That's what the word of God does. That's what it has the power to do. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It cuts us to the quick for our healing. It also cuts through the bull. And it gets right to the heart of things. Like a sick patient needs that surgeon's scalpel, so we need the sword of God's word to do spiritual surgery on our hearts. Dear Christian, are you allowing God's word to do its work in you? If you'll read it and study it and truly apply yourself to it and come to love it and learn it, it will challenge you and it will convict you, but it will also encourage you and minister to your heart. Because the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, it is the greatest diagnostic tool we have to examine our own heart. Our passage closes today with verse 13. So let's read this verse, and it gives us a very important reminder. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. As the writer of Hebrews has just taught us that God's word exposes our true selves He now continues that thought by reminding us that we can't hide from God on the day of judgment. One day, each of us will give an account of our lives. In fact, verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, and that all things will be made naked and completely open before him. Now, I believe that there are shades of the Garden of Eden in this verse. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, the Bible says that they were naked and not ashamed Why would they be? They were completely innocent. They're like children. They didn't know any better. 
But once they sinned, what did they do? They made coverings for themselves out of leaves and they tried to hide from God. That's our instinct as humans, isn't it? When we sin, to hide from God. Yet God, because he loved them, called them out of their hiding places and exposed their sin and brought it into the light and made new clothes for them. Now here's the truth. One day, just like Adam and Eve, you and I are gonna stand before God in judgment. And like Adam and Eve, on that day, there will be absolutely nothing to hide ourselves behind. No fig leaves, no facade. We will give a full and open account of our life to the Lord Jesus. And we'll have to answer for what we did with the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that God gave us in this life. That knowledge should always be in the forefront of our mind that that day is coming. 2 Corinthians 5 says it involves a a certain sense of terror. It should invoke a a, a holy fear in us to know that one day we're going to stand before God and give an account for every idle word and deed. And that should motivate us and it should inspire us to live every day of our lives for him. And one way we do that is by devoting ourselves to the word of God. Now, as we come to a time of response, we we started off the sermon today talking about diagnostic tools. And I hope you see now that the greatest diagnostic tool we have to evaluate where we stand with the Lord is the word of God. The fact is you cannot be a healthy Christian if you're not consistently in the word. I wanna challenge each of you to make a daily habit of reading and studying your Bible If you need help getting started or if you've tried in the past and got discouraged and quit, please talk to me or Pastor Bill or your Sunday school teacher or any mature Christian in this room. We'd be more than happy to help you get started on a a Bible reading plan. And of course, what you'll find, as we said, is as you read the Word of God, that the Word of God will in fact read you. And we all need that. I wonder if anyone here today has been read by the word of God, as the word of God has been preached this morning. I wonder if anyone here today has been cut to the heart by the word as it's been proclaimed. What is the Holy Spirit telling you to do through the teaching of God's word today? Do you need to commit your life to Jesus? Do you need to follow the Lord in baptism? Do you need to unite with this church in membership? Is there sin in your life? that's not been confessed? Do you need to confess it and repent of it? Here in just a moment, we're gonna have a song of response. And if you need to do any of these things I just mentioned or do any other business with the Lord this morning, be obedient to the direction of the Holy Spirit and you come and do that. I'll be here at the front to receive you and pray with you. I'm gonna pray right now. And then after I pray, our musicians are gonna come and we'll have our song of response. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we have had in your word. We acknowledge, Lord, that it is perfect, that it is true, that it is a divine revelation of all that you have to say to us, and we thank you for it. And Lord, please help us to be faithful, to be in the word. Speak to our hearts now, Lord. Help us be obedient to what you'd have us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.